0: All right, this morning, we'll be looking into Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> we'll be considering a passage from this book. Uh, my wife and I have been spent the last few months in this book, and the men are embarking on a study of the book as well, so it's kind of a popular uh, topic right now. Um, but it's a book I've been in, so I thought I would speak on it this morning. I'd like to share some thoughts that I've had as I've been reflecting on what Romans has to say. Um, The book of Romans in our Bibles is a letter. It was written by Paul to the church in Rome. At the time he wrote the letter, he had not been to Rome, but he was eager to visit the church and to preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he mentions that their faith in Christ is widely known. And he's been praying diligently for them So he's writing this letter in anticipation of visiting them in the future, and with great care he spells out the truths of the gospel to make sure they have a firm footing in their faith in Christ. And although this is a letter, it is the divinely inspired word of God. It's the God-breathed word to us this morning from the pen of Paul, the Apostle. As we look in Romans, it starts, the first three chapters of Romans really focus in on the depravity of man and man's need of salvation, spelling out that all mankind, Jews and Gentiles alike, are under sin. And a good summary of this is found in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12, a few verses there, which say the following, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, and then he quotes from Psalm 14, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Here Paul establishes that all of us are guilty of sin, and have actively been doers of evil instead of doers of good. The scriptures are full of similar passages that reinforce this same basic truth. If we try to defend ourselves from this accusation and begin to think that we really aren't all that bad, we're simply deceiving ourselves. As John makes clear in 1 John 1.8, where he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So it's clear, we all are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. So after these first three chapters, like the uh, first half of the third chapter, Paul moves into the second half of the third chapter to lay out the remedy for our sin. Namely, that we are justified by faith in Christ's death as payment for our sin. And the core of this argument is found in Romans 3, verse 23 through the middle of verse 25, which says as follows, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In these verses, we have packed some of the most profound truths concerning our salvation from sin there is in Scripture, and it's all packed into such a short space. Let's read it again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. It's packed with phrase after phrase, each one building on the one before. Let's look briefly at this in a little more detail. Verse 23 starts, all have sinned, which establishes again the truth we just talked about. that has been spelled out in great detail in the first three chapters. So if we've all sinned and fallen short or been separated from God, then how can we ever know God or be rescued from our sin? The passage goes on to say we are justified, or declared righteous, by his grace. This is something graciously bestowed on us as a gift. It's not something we earned, but something that was given to us as a gift. And it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified through the redemption, which implies a price was paid, something was paid, To redeem me and it was paid in christ jesus the one man who never committed any sin the god man the man who was truly man and yet truly god so how is it that we're redeemed in christ jesus it's because god put him forward as a propitiation by his blood who is the active party here it's god God put Christ forward. In a sense, he offered him as a propitiation by his blood. The Old Testament law made clear that blood was required as payment for sin. The people would bring animals and offer them as a sacrifice. The blood of the animal would be poured out on the altar as payment for sin. And now, here, Jesus is said to be offered as a propitiation by his blood. He is the sacrifice. And his blood is shed on the cross as payment for our sin. So what is a propitiation? He was offered as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is where atonement or payment is made for sin, to satisfy the demands of justice. It's a place to turn away God's wrath from sinners. The same word is used in Hebrews 9.5, where it's describing the contents of the most holy place, where God's presence was known. Inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, and on the Ark was the mercy seat, or the lid, where atonement was made for the people by the high priest once a year. The high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice, sprinkle it on the mercy seat as payment for sin. And the word translated propitiation in Romans 3.24 that we've been reading is the same word translated mercy seat in Hebrews 9. So Christ is called the propitiation. He is the mercy seat, the place of atonement for our sin. And Christ's blood completely paid the penalty for our sin, just as the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. And finally, all of this truth is to be received by faith. By faith we believe that Christ by his blood, by his death, was the propitiation that God put forward for our sin. Because of that propitiation, we are redeemed from the guilt of sin. And so we are justified before God, all as a gift by his grace. It's a lot to take in. So let's review it one more time. We'll go backwards now through those verses to build all upon them. So that at the end of that passage, it says this is to be received by faith. And what is to be received by faith? We receive and trust in the truth that the blood of Christ was the propitiation for our sin and that God put Christ forward to die on the cross for us to provide redemption from the guilt and penalty of sin and that receiving this by faith results in our being justified by his grace as a gift, not earned by any kind of works. These are amazingly compact, dense, and rich verses. and We could spend several hours looking at each phrase in more detail and in more depth. But for now, we must move on. So, in this last half of chapter 3, Paul establishes that to be saved from sin, we must be justified by faith. He moves into chapter 4 and gives an example of justification by faith in Abraham. Verse 3 kind of summarizes what chapter 4 talks about, where he says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, showing that Abraham was not saved by works of the law, but by faith and the promise of God. Just as we're saved by faith today, so was Abraham, and so were all of the Old Testament saints saved by faith as well. And so now we come to chapter five. And the reason we looked at all of that is because chapter five starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, meaning let's reflect on what's all been said before in this book. So reflecting on all that's been said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by faith results in our having peace with God. Justification by faith is not just a grand doctrine of the church to be studied and revered. It's not something to be celebrated once a year when we remember the posting of the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church by Martin Luther. It really affects every aspect of our life. And some of the implications of this peace that we have from God as a result of being justified by faith are spelled out in this chapter. In the last few verses of the scripture reading this morning, Paul uses the phrase much more to describe the results of our being justified. He compares two truths and says, if the first is true, then much more will something else be true. He does this actually four times in chapter 5 of Romans, twice in the scripture reading this morning, and we'll be looking at those two instances this morning, starting in verse 9 in Romans 5, verse 9, it says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we now are justified because we've believed in Christ. And if we, by faith, trust in the truth that Christ is the propitiation for our sin, we are justified in the sight of God. Being justified means that we are declared righteous. I was once told that a good way to remember justify, what that means is it's just as if I never sinned, justify. But it's actually more than that. It is as though I never sinned, because my sin is washed away. But added to that is the fact that Christ's righteousness is applied to me. I am made righteous by a righteousness that's outside of myself. My nature is not changed but my legal standing with God has changed. Instead of being guilty and receiving the due penalty for my sin, if I trust in what Christ has done for me, I am declared free from sin because Christ took my place. I'm no longer in bondage to sin, but I'm freed from the chains of sin that enslave me. I'm declared righteous, I'm justified, because he lived a life of complete obedience to the commands of God and he died in my place to pay for my sin. My sin has been removed from me as far as the East is from the West. And on top of that, I'm regarded as having fulfilled the law in every respect because Christ's righteousness is credited to my account. In God's eyes, there's no longer any enmity or strife toward me. He doesn't doesn't view me with suspicion. There's no grudge against me that God holds. There's no withholding of any good thing but I am declared righteous in his sight. And this happens by faith. And it's possible because of Christ's blood shed for me. My sin has been paid for by the blood of the lion. His righteousness has been accounted to me. And my justification is sure. It's based on the work of the Savior and sealed with his blood. So, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, and we have, and continuing on in verse 9, but this is the foundation, much more are we sure that we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is our first much more. If we're sure that we are justified, then there is no doubt we'll be saved from the wrath of God. What's amazing is that as sure as Christ's blood paid for our sins, our future status with God is even more assured because it's based on his work. Not ours. I don't ever need to do anything to appease the wrath of God. Christ has done it for me. It's not popular today to think of God as being a God of wrath. People don't like to speak of the wrath of God, people want to think of Him as only love. But God is holy, He cannot tolerate sin at all in His presence. And the Bible is full of references to God's wrath on sin. Paul spoke of the wrath of God earlier in Romans. In Romans 1.18, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Every day we sin, and each sin must be accounted for. Each one is worthy of death against the infinite righteousness and holiness of God. Our sin is either paid for by the blood of Christ through faith in him or we must pay for it ourselves. Those who are not trusting in Christ are storing up wrath each day. In Romans 2 verse 5, Paul wrote, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Reminds me of having a piggy bank, taking a penny. You put one in, clink. You put in another one, clink. If you are outside of Christ, with each sin that you commit, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath And And this wrath will come upon all who are outside of Christ. And Paul warns of this coming wrath in the book of Colossians. He says in Colossians 3, 5, and 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. It's spoken of again in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 10, which says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will be inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So those who refuse the offer of the gift of salvation that God offers by His grace will bear their sins forever and suffer under the wrath of God. So my question to you is, have you been justified by His blood? Or will you be among those who suffer for eternity under the wrath of God? Will you be among those who are suffering eternal destruction because of the sin that you have. Turn from your sin today and believe in the shedding of Christ's blood as payment for your sin, and you will be forgiven and reconciled to God and declared righteous in his sight. If today you are a child of God and have been justified by his blood, then you're freed from this wrath of God that will appear when Christ returns. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us that Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. We are saved by God from God, as R.C. Sproul says. God saves us from his wrath by providing for us salvation in Christ. And then we have nothing to fear in final judgment. We have no need to fear his wrath because we have been justified. As we grow older and the reality of death grows ever closer, we have no need to fear. If we are justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Then moving on to verse 10. Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So again, the first part of the the verse uh, tells us of the first truth, that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This parallels what's said earlier in Romans 5, verse 6, he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then again in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were weak, at that time, Christ died for us to redeem us from our sin. We're reconciled by the death of his son, Christ, the eternal son of God. And God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself by sending his son. Colossians 1.21 echoes the same truth. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were enemies, but now, because we've been reconciled to God by the death of the Son of God, we are no longer enemies, incurring his wrath, but instead, we have fellowship with God. We are forever his, and nothing can turn him against us. In our relationships with other people, When we've wronged someone, we often feel we need to work to earn their favor. I think of Jacob in the Old Testament. Remember Jacob, he steals his brother's birthright. Then he conspires with his mother, Rebecca, to steal the blessing that Isaac intended to give to Esau. He deceives his father, pretends to be Esau, goes in and gets from from his father the blessing. And then he flees to his mother's homeland. And there he finds his wives, Leah and Rachel. He works for Laban for 20 years, and then he returns home. He's amassed a lot of wealth, a lot of goods and livestock. But as he travels home, he knows that he's going to be facing Esau, the brother that he wronged. So he seeks to win his favor by sending gifts ahead of him. He sends three droves of goats, and ewes, and rams, and camels, and cows, and donkeys, doing everything he can to appease his enemy, hoping that Esau will not be angry with him. And Genesis says that this is what Jacob was thinking, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. He knew he had wronged Esau he knew it and he knew that Esau knew it so he was desperate to make amends with Esau for his own safety and that of his family he was trying to appease the anger of the one whom he had wronged how often we approach God this very same way though we belong to Christ and we've been justified by faith We are still in these bodies of flesh and we still find the struggle with sin is real. When we've sinned against God, we feel we must do something to appease him, to appease the one whom we have wronged. We're afraid he has turned against us. When we've sinned and begin to feel the weight of guilt, sometimes our instinct is to hide from God, to feel we must do something to appease him. But because we were enemies, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God and justified by faith in Christ's work. When we sin, we must simply come to him in confession of our sin. To attempt to do some kind of penance to appease God's wrath is to show that Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient for me and to make little of his sacrifice on my behalf. We don't have to do anything to appease him. But you may say, but you don't understand. I, I have sinned, and I really messed up. I really need to do something to make it up to God. Well, I understand there may be consequences to be dealt with because of your sin. But regarding your standing with God, all you must do is turn from your sin, confess it to God, and find forgiveness based on Christ's work on your behalf. You may say, but, but you don't understand. This isn't the first time I've done this. I've actually done this sin many times. Still, I say, in terms of your standing with God, all you must do is turn from your sin, confess it to God, and find forgiveness based on Christ's work on your behalf. But you may say, actually, you don't understand. You see, last time that I did this, I told God I would never do it again. I vowed I would never commit this sin again. But I've done it again. So now I know he's angry with me. I know I need to convince him that I'm really serious this time. No, what you must do is turn from your sin, confess it to God, and find forgiveness based on Christ's work on your behalf. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I am trusting in Christ's death as a payment for my sin, nothing else is needed to find forgiveness from God. So come to him quickly. However, we're not to live in perpetual willful sin in complete disregard for what the Bible says. We ought to renounce our sin. We ought to seek to glorify God in all of our actions. Paul goes on to make this argument later on in the book of Romans. Romans 6.1, he says, What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We are to be striving against sin, but we're not seeking to convince him of our righteousness, that we really aren't that bad, that our intentions are good, We're not seeking to appease his wrath by heroic acts of self-deprivation to impress him. We must come to him in complete humility, repenting of and turning from our sin and resting on the fullness of his grace and forgiveness because of the sufficiency of Christ's work, not the earnestness of our tears or the sincerity of our resolves. Yes, resolve to never commit that sin again, not to placate his wrath so that his name may be glorified and his power magnified in your life. We have been called to be holy as he is holy. 1 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's prayer was that God would make us worthy of our calling, that every resolve for good we could fulfill through the power of the Spirit in us, that Christ would be glorified. So again, if it's true that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, which we have been, then verse 10 says much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only are we saved by his death, we are saved by his life. 2 Corinthians 4.11 says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. His life is manifested in us. It's manifested by the perfect obedience to the law which he had while he was on earth, that obedience being credited to our account when we believe in Christ. And his life is perfected in his resurrection. He died to pay for our sin and he rose in victory over sin. His death is always associated with his resurrection. They're inseparable. His resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection to come, our salvation from sin and death. Our Savior is alive. He ever lives to intercede for us. He is our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 3, 15, 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need we can come freely to our living Savior. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is our Savior, and he lives that we may live. And if while we were enemies, we benefited from His death, much more, now that we are reconciled, we are benefactors of his life. And then Paul goes on in verse 11 to say, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so we rejoice in Christ our Savior. Earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we rejoice because, as Paul says in verse five of chapter five, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God the Father poured his love into our hearts through his Spirit and sent his Son to be the mercy seat for our sin. Our triune God is active in all three persons to bring about the reconciliation that we receive from him. And so we rejoice. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He died for us. He lives for us. He has reconciled us to himself. What have we left to do but glory in his love and protection and care and sufficient sacrifice? He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And we know that in the life to come, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. What a hope we have. In the words of of the songwriter, because the sinless Savior died, My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our sufficient Savior, who is all-sufficient to meet our every need, and who has washed away our sin. We're thankful that we stand complete and justified before you because we stand in the work of our Savior who died for us, who lives for us, who makes intercession for us. How we rejoice in the salvation that we have. Lord, I pray if there is one here who has not trusted in Christ for forgiveness of their sin, that your Spirit would convict them today that they would trust in Christ's payment for their sin. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.